morning, everyone. So what if you woke up tomorrow and you were the only Christian on planet Earth? I know it's a weird thought experiment, but just imagine it. The only person on planet Earth that knew about Jesus, the only person on planet Earth who knew Jesus personally, what would you do? How would you feel about all that? Well, I read a blog post this week by an Australian pastor named Stephen McElpine, and he wrote in response to a movie trailer that recently came out for a movie called Yesterday. And I, I guess the movie's going to come out at the end of June. Okay? So the storyline is set in an English coastal town, and there's this musician named Jack Malik or Malik, and he is terribly unsuccessful. So at his last gig, you see four children sitting in the grass, you know, under a tent. <laughs> and there you go. That's his audience. So one night, he's riding his bike, and there's this massive power outage. And in the darkness, Malik is hit by a car, and he wakes up the next day in the hospital, and he's missing a tooth, but, you know, overall, he's okay. But somehow, however, the world into which he awoke is a world in which the Beatles never were. The Beatles, like the band, okay? Everybody tracking here? Okay, thank you. So he plays, his girlfriend gives him a guitar, like a new guitar for something. Um, you know, there's only so much that they reveal in three minutes of a, of, a, of a trailer. And he starts playing Yesterday. Okay, famous Beatles song, maybe one of the most famous. And there's a few other people at this meal, you know, brunch or lunch or something. And the other people around the table just gasp with emotion. And they ask, when, when did you write this song? And he says, I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The, the Beatles. And they have no idea what he's talking about. So all of a sudden, this struggling musician has the entire back catalog of one of the most famous bands in, of all time at his disposal. So the amazement and the delight of his growing audience just multiplies with each new song that he comes out with. So yesterday, you know, all my troubles seem so far away. You know, it's been like covered a gazillion times, and maybe Tim Hawkins has ruined it for some of you with that whole Chick-fil-A song. Okay. Anyway, sorry about that. Need to get that out of your head. Um, come together. Let it be. I want to hold your hand. Something. Hey, Jude. I mean, we could go on and on, right? There's just like so many famous songs from this band. So McElpine writes this. It's the sheer joy, exuberance, and exhilaration that the first hearings of Jack's songs, Jack's songs, engenders in people that has made me watch the trailer about ten times since its release a few days ago. Of course, there's a love story and the little matter of plagiarism to contend with, but it's the first-time discovery of the Beatles' music by an unsuspecting public that's so wonderful. And it got me thinking. Imagine waking up tomorrow morning and being the only person who had heard of Jesus, what would you do? 
You'd want people to know his back catalog, wouldn't you? You'd want to play it all the time and to play it to as many people as you could. You'd want people to discover the joy. You'd want to tell as many people as you could what Jesus was like, what Jesus claimed, what he came to do, where he came from to do it, what it would be like to meet him. You'd want to tell people stories about how Jesus came up to broken people and put them back together, how he approached untouchable, hated people and touched them and loved them, how he spoke life to dying people and resurrection to dead people. You'd want to show them that death can, no, can, can hold no fear for them because of Jesus. Most of all, you'd want to tell people how much Jesus loved them, not just loved people, but loved his enemies and also what it cost him to do it, all the way to his sacrificial death on the cross for them to save them from a fate that includes death. And here's what you'd want You'd want to see the wonder and joy in people's faces when they came to the realization of Jesus for the first time. That's what you'd want, isn't it? First to share the joy and then to see the joy Jesus brings. And here's the other realization. We do indeed wake up in a world in which many, many people have not heard of Jesus. Perhaps they can hum a few bars but that's about it. And there's something exciting about that. There's a whole bunch of people out there who are yet to discover the joy of a hidden treasure revealed for the first time. And those of us who know and love Jesus already get to be the people to sing his praises from the moment we wake up tomorrow. I know that's sobering and convicting and encouraging and all kinds of things all at once. So just let that kind of sink in a little bit. So this morning we're drawing our Come, Follow Me series on discipleship to a close. Um, this morning, it's been the seven-part series. Um, we're going to focus our attention here at the end on Matthew 28, the passage that Al read, the Great Commission. So if you're not there, go ahead and turn there. We're going to dive right in to Matthew 28, 18 to 20. So I think the text will be up there, but also you can find it on page 835 in the Bible in the pew if you don't have one with you. So there's an outline in the bulletin if that's helpful, and the outline will also be up on the slides so you can follow along. So first point, disciples make disciples. So Matthew 28, 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. He's speaking to his disciples, and he's telling his disciples to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age.
So point number one is disciples make disciples. So let me just start off with a, an important clarification. Yes, in one sense, we, if you are a disciple of Jesus, we make disciples. Disciples make disciples. God works through his people. But we have to say this in a more fundamental sense. It's not us. It's not we who make disciples. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, right? It's the gospel driven home into the heart by the Spirit of God that makes disciples. So look at Acts chapter 14, verses 20 to 21. But when the disciples gathered about him, this is Paul, he got stoned, remember? (laughs) He gets stoned and he gets up and goes right back into the city. Um, That's a disciple worth following, isn't it? So when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. Those are intentionally laid side by side. If you're going to make disciples, you've got to preach the gospel if they're going to be disciples of Jesus. And then they returned and strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So you and I, we have no ability, no power in and of ourselves to make a disciple. But we do have the gospel. And it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Right? So in the context of Matthew 28, Jesus has died. He's risen. He's appeared to his disciples. He's about to ascend. And he gives them this great commission. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. <laughs> Do you notice that? I mean, obviously we know about doubting Thomas, but it's more than just Thomas who doubted. So how did Jesus respond to the doubters? And Jesus came and said to them, What's wrong with you people? I spent three years with you, you know, night and day. You could hardly understand anything that I taught you. You're so thick-headed, I'd be tempted to mistake you for a herd of pigs, not a flock of sheep. I told you I was about to suffer and die, and you were worried about getting the positions of power in my kingdom. The night before I was crucified, remember this? Guys, you remember this? You know, I'm sweating drops of blood, and you're snoozing. I get arrested, and you all scatter like roaches when the lights get turned on. And then I rise from the dead, as I had predicted many times, like, do you remember? I show you my scars and still some of you doubt. What in the world? Like, I've had enough of you people. Doubters, go home. I'm tired of putting up with you and waiting for you to come around. What do I need to do to convince you? Well, that's obviously not what he said. But he could have said that, right? I mean, that, we might be tempted. No. Notice the character of our Savior, our master here. They're doubting him after all of this. And he says to the worshipers and the doubters, disciples all, all authority has been given to me. So go, make disciples of me among all the nations, and I'm going to be with you. So this whole mission is actually way more about Jesus and his authority and his presence than it is about 
us and our strength and our confidence. You notice that? I mean, that's encouraging, isn't it? Because, I don't know, you ever intimidated by the Great Commission and making disciples? So this is good news. We We are weak, but he is strong, and he is with us. So the emphasis here is not so much on us going, though that's true, but it's on Jesus sending us. He's got all authority, and he's going to be with us. So the only hope we have, but the very real and mighty confidence we have, is that King Jesus is with us. He's got all authority in heaven and earth. There's no more, there's no one with more authority than Jesus. He and the Father are one. They share this authority, but there's nobody more authoritative or more powerful in the universe. And that's what's behind, he's behind this commission. This sending has been given to us by King Jesus. So many of you probably already know this, but the primary verb here, the imperative here, is to make disciples. Okay, so that's where the real emphasis is. You and I, we're commissioned to make disciples as we're going, and we do so by baptizing new believers in the name. It's actually singular. One in three. It's the Trinity right here. The name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. So we are commissioned to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the triune God and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. So we're sent If you are a Christian, you're a disciple of Jesus, you are sent, and we need to go and make disciples. This isn't optional. This isn't for just the professionals. This is for every disciple. And and when we share the gospel, you know, usually over some time in the context of relationship, and a person does come to faith, they do believe, then that person should be baptized. So what they're doing is they're publicly declaring their faith in Jesus and giving testimony of what God has done in their life internally. So their water baptism is this beautiful visual aid of what God has already done secretly internally by his spirit. So they, they have died to their old selfish way of life. They've repented. They've turned away from false gods. They've they've trusted in Jesus. They're following him. So that old life is dead and buried. And they've been born again, raised up to new life. So if you're in Christ, that's true of you. You are made alive together with Christ. You're a new creation. The old is gone and buried. There's no condemnation. Jesus paid for it all, right? and we walk in newness of life. We're alive together with Christ, saved by his grace. And baptism is this public testimony saying, I am with Jesus by his grace. I'm so grateful, and I want to follow him, and I want you, his people, my fellow pilgrims on the way here, to help me and to hold me accountable as I seek to follow him faithfully all my days. So, Baptism is just the beginning. Making a disciple doesn't stop there. It begins there. And then we continue on in a lifetime of learning from and living for Jesus. 
So learning all that he's commanded and following all he has commanded, which means that discipleship, making disciples is not just evangelism and it's not just maturing believers. It's both and. Making and maturing. Right? Let's also not mess the obvious here. One of the things that Jesus has commanded his disciples that we ought to teach his disciples is that they should be making disciples, right? So this passage is one of the things that Jesus commands, uh, teaching them to obey, not teaching them to, to know in their heads all that I've commanded. It's teaching them to observe, to obey all that I've commanded. So we are called not only to be disciples following Jesus, we are called to make disciples. You must be a disciple to make a disciple. You know, you can't pass along what you don't possess, right? But you must pass along what you do possess. We have this great treasure. So to be a disciple is to seek to make disciples. So... What is it? What is it for you? What is it for me? What is it that keeps us from making disciples? What are the things at the top of the list for you? Maybe write them down. Talk about them with your community group today or later this week or whenever you're meeting. Pray about it. Ah, I need to overcome this obstacle. It keeps getting in the way. Is it that you're too busy? We're so busy, so we marginalize this command and we prioritize other things. But see, listen, we're not the ones with all heavenly and earthly authority, right? We're not the Lord. Jesus is. And he says, go and make disciples. So our priorities are out of whack if seeking to make disciples is not a priority. You see, like... His authority is a good thing because he's for us and not against us, but it also has a sharp edge like, hey, you're not the Lord. (laughs) So who do we think we are if we put way down on the list something that Jesus puts as a priority? Or maybe, maybe it's fear. Does that get in the way? of making disciples for you, you know, we shrink back from this command, from telling the gospel to people. But listen, isn't this encouraging? We're not alone in making disciples. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth promises to be with us even to the end of the age. So the most powerful being in the universe promises to be with you always. We're not alone when we get out of our comfort zone and try to go there and initiate conversation with someone because we want them to know Jesus and we want them to not go to hell and be with us forever, with God, in fellowship with him. We're not alone. This can be scary, but Jesus is with us so we can go and make disciples. He's not going to abandon you when you step out in faith to seek to make disciples. So Bethel family, Disciples of Jesus make disciples. We must be disciples who make disciples. Or you could say we should be disciple-making disciples who make disciple-making disciples. I'll give you a second. Let that sink in.
At least that's what we, we should want. Don't you want that? Shouldn't that be like in the DNA of this place? And I mean people. Now, if we're going to be disciples who make disciples, then everything we covered in the first six weeks of this series is actually essential to making disciples of all the nations. You can't pass on what you don't possess. So you've got to be a faithful disciple if you're going to be faithful to make disciples. So being a disciple of Jesus, we've talked about it from all different angles. It's more than just about who we are privately or how we relate to the body of Christ, as important as those things are. But being a disciple for us, because of where we live, is about Wilmington and the world. So what we're going to do now is review the series. And this is not like, uh, hopefully not just a pedantic kind of like boringly repetitive exercise. This is to show you that all the key elements and aspects of discipleship are all pointing and, and moving you to being on mission with Jesus. Okay? I just want you to see the connection, how it's all related. Okay? So, we're going to see how every aspect of discipleship points to making disciples of our neighbors and the nations. Discipleship is all about learning from and following Jesus, right? That was the first thing. What is a disciple? A learner and a follower. Well, if we're going to be following Jesus, where is he going to lead us? He tells us right here in Matthew 28, he's going to lead us to the nations. He wants his followers to tell everyone everywhere. Or you could think about how Jesus summarized his mission in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So if that's what he came for, then where's he going to lead us if we're following him? To seek and save the lost, right? Or you could listen to how he spoke to his disciples after the resurrection. John 20, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So it's not an exact one-to-one, -one, right? I mean, there's certainly things about Jesus' mission that were unique to him. No one else could atone for sins. We're not going to do that. You know, no one else is going to be condemned in the place of sinners so that they can be justified. So we're not sent exactly like the Son was sent by the Father, but we are sent to seek and to save the lost. We're sent as ambassadors of the King. So on his behalf, you know, we're making his appeal to others that they would repent and believe and be reconciled to God through Christ and be saved by grace through faith in Jesus. So we shouldn't be surprised if, if everything ties in here. If, if that was how Jesus described his mission, then of course if we're following him, it's going to be a part of our lives, right? So let's just walk down through, and if you are visiting with us, you're going to get a summary of the whole series in one shot here. Um, so hopefully it'll be helpful for all of us, even if this is your first Sunday here. So week number one, Jesus is teacher and master. We are learners and followers. Do you remember one of the first things that um, Jesus said to those who would soon become his disciples? He said it to these fishermen. Was that he was going to make them fishers of men. 
Remember that? So Mark 1.17, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Does that make any of you uncomfortable? Like to have this fishing metaphor going? Because if you've ever gone fishing, what are you doing? You're getting a lure. It's bait in order to deceive the fish in order to capture them and, you know, take them out of their native environment. They die or, you know, maybe you release them. But you see there's like, oh, what a politically incorrect, you know, description of what... You have to deceive the fish into taking the bait, and then you reel them to their, to their death. So evangelism, making disciples, certainly in some people's eyes, that's exactly what they think it is. Um, luring people through deception and manipulation. No, no, no. This is catching for life. So actually, catch men or fishers of men, it has the meaning of rescuing from danger, not capturing and killing. Okay, so the verb means to capture or save alive, to spare life. Okay, so for instance, this word was used actually in Joshua 2. Remember the story of Rahab and, and Jericho? Here's, here's where this word is used. Rahab harbors those spies and she says, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother. Same verb. My brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So, again, positive connotations that make sense. So, like, yes, there has been bait and switch in the name of Christ, sadly, right? Anybody ever seen that, heard that firsthand? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Unfortunately, okay, well, great. If you haven't, that's great. But sadly, that happens, you know, this bait and switch thing. Or how about emotional manipulation, you know? We don't need any more of that. Jesus is not encouraging that. So don't think, you know, bass masters in the boat luring the fish to put another notch in my angler's belt. Rather, think of like a brackish pool that's drying up as the hot sun blazes and there are fish trapped in that little, you know, puddle. And as the sun continues to beat down, it's soon going to kill them and you are catching them alive and rescuing them so that you can transplant them to clean, healthy, well-fed water source. So Jesus uses ex-prisoners like you and me, captives to sin, to release the captives. He uses poor in, in spirit people like you and me to feed spiritual beggars. He uses sinners to save sinners. All right? So he's the teacher and the master. And as soon as he gets on the scene and starts calling disciples, he says, let me tell you, what it's going to be like to follow me. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to turn you into fishers of men. So Jesus is Lord. He's the teacher. He's the master. We are learners, and we need to be followers. Week two was Jesus is Lord. We must die. Okay, Mark 8, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
Whoever tries to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it, will save it. So think about that in relation to making disciples and seeing people's lives transformed. Well, oftentimes it's shame that gets in the way, right? We're afraid of what people are going to think of us. We'll look down. Actually, next slide, um, Chad, if you have verse 38 on there. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So in other words, die to your reputation. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Just die to your reputation. You don't need to be ashamed. What really matters is well done, good and faithful servant. And if you have the smile of God because of the grace of the gospel, you can endure the frowns of people. So Jesus is Lord, and yes, we need to die. Our kind of love of our reputation, our fear of shame needs to die, our fear of what it might cost. Okay, we've got to die to fear of people and cost and being ashamed. So a um, couple months ago, actually, I think it was Brett or Brady that sent this um, testimony. So Jeff Thompson, um, some of you know Jeff. He went to UD, played football, was involved with um, Urban Promise for a while, and now is down in Baltimore, his wife Ashley, and um, they have this ministry, 1012 Sports, so there's lots of discipleship he's doing with um, kids in uh, the inner city of Baltimore. And so I just love this testimony of, of discipleship because Jeff has denied himself comfort and safety because he's following Jesus. And so it's a perfect picture of Jesus is Lord, we must die, we can trust him. Um, and he is making disciples there because of it. So Coach Jeff, what are you doing? You don't know what them dudes got on them. What if they pull a gun on you? Haven't you ever heard anyone say, mind your business? These were some of the responses that I heard from our 10, 12 teens after abruptly hitting a U-turn to head into the McDonald's parking lot. It was about 11.30 p.m., and two men had just physically knocked out another man in, his, in this parking lot while ignoring the loud horn beeps of our van, attempting to distract them from assaulting the man. There are many times in ministry where we don't know what the results will be, but only that we are to be obedient in walking in faith in the moment. This was one of those times. After we parked and I got out of the van, the two men went into the McDonald's. The victim was confirmed to be okay, and others came over to help. We proceeded back on our journey of dropping the teens off. Coach Jeff, what's wrong with you? You're crazy, remarked Corey. Oddly enough, there was a conversation in the back seat earlier about one of our teens getting into a group fight with his family and friends against another group of teens. I just feel like instead of being courageous when we're fighting against others because of disrespect, we should be courageous about something that actually matters, standing up for those who can't defend themselves. That's what Jesus did, I said. But what if they've turned on you and shot you, Corey added, as other teens confirmed that sentiment. Do you guys listen to the message that I share about every day? If I die, it's okay. I know where I'm going. My family and kids will miss me for sure, but they'll be okay. But me, I know exactly where I'll be with the Lord. And then this was so encouraging. I know where I'll be too, chimed a familiar voice from the back seat. It was Tyrone who gave his life to the Lord two years ago. 
after being a part of the program. The next few minutes were silent as we dropped Corey off and headed back towards South Baltimore. What the Lord orchestrated next excites my heart to this day. Antoine broke the silence with a question he obviously had been pondering for the last 15 minutes. Coach Jeff, you, you know how you said that you knew what would happen after you die? I don't know where I would go. I just try to live my, my life the best way I know how in the midst of a violent neighborhood. I do my best to be positive and hope that God will forgive me. Knowing that God's grace isn't about doing the right things or about works that we can do, I contemplated what I would say to convey this truth. Before I got a chance to chime in, it's not about getting everything right. It's about what Jesus did and accepting that, remarked Tyrone. The next 15 minutes consisted of a 15-year-old Tyrone sharing about what it meant to be a Christ follower and to be faithful to him while living in a tough environment. He even went on to share about how someone can enter into a relationship with Jesus. Knowing Tyrone's hardships, he was the perfect person to speak on these topics. I used to question how being a Christian would help me living in Baltimore City, and now I know, said Tyrone. It was 1.30 a.m., and I had finally finished dropping off all the teenagers. While our overnight trip to Virginia was amazing, I was spent. Although I felt physically weary, I hadn't felt so emotionally and spiritually energized in some time. I had just been poured into by my 14-year-old teacher in a way that encouraged me to continue pursuing God as a black man in Baltimore City. This is our vision. This is 1012. So Jeff has denied himself and taken up his cross and followed Jesus. Death is at work in him, but life is at work in some of these boys. They see it. They see that Jesus is Lord in his life. And now Jesus is Lord in their life because his authentic, risky faith is compelling, and God's using it to save those other kids. So Jesus is Lord, we must die. And you can see how that leads to life. If you, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake in the Gospels, you'll find it, and others will find it through you. Week number three. Some of these will be kind of quick. Jesus' purpose glory and good, okay? Like, what was Jesus' purpose on planet Earth? The glory of God and the good of others, temporal and eternal. And if we're following him, we are going to be living passionately for the glory of God and the good of others, rather than our glory and selfishly living for ourselves. So think about it. The spread of the gospel is the only way to spread his glory, right? If we're living for the glory of God, we want more and more people to hallow his name, to glorify his name. And the only way that's going to happen is that they become new people by the grace of the gospel. And when we share Christ with other people and make disciples, we can do no better ultimate good than give them Jesus, right? So talk about living for the glory of God and the good of others. Making disciples is at the heart of that. We can give no better gift to people than the grace of the gospel. Week four, Jesus' law, which is love as I have loved you. So you remember that week 
we consider John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the whole point is we ought to love each other as Christ has loved us, and when we do, it's going to identify us as Jesus' people, his disciples, and people are going to know it. It's going to have impact outside the family of faith. So then in John 17, Jesus is praying, and he says, I do not ask for these only, my disciples right there, the 12, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the love and the unity of the people of God is intended to be missional. It's intended to be, like we considered a couple weeks ago, the final apologetic, like a corporate apologetic. The love and unity of the people of God is like this beautiful, conspicuous, how in the world do you guys love each other like that? So again, loving as he's loved us, even within the family of faith, has a missional purpose. Francis Shaver said something else here, I think is a good um, follow-up to these verses. I mean, if we believe the truths of the gospel, that there is a hell, there is a heaven, there's only one way out of hell and one way to heaven, reconciliation with God, how can we possibly claim to love if we don't do something about it. So listen to Francis Schaeffer. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but I think it's up there. It'll help you follow along. So he and his wife, um, Edith, created Labrie, this um, like community up in the Swiss Alps. And you know they invited anybody to come and spend time with them. It was this beautiful Christian community. So here's what he writes. It's a costly business to have a sense of community. Labrie cannot be explained merely by the clear doctrine that is preached. It cannot be explained by the fact that God has been giving intellectual answers to intellectual questions. I think those two things are important. But Labrie cannot be explained if you remove the third. And that is, there has been some community here. And it has been costly. In about the first three years of Labrie, all our wedding presents were wiped out, like ruined. Our sheets were torn. Holes were burned in our rugs. Indeed, once a whole curtain almost burned up from somebody smoking in our living room. There we go. Maybe we need to have more people smoking in our living rooms. No amens. All right. Front porch? Come on. Um, Minorities came to our table. Everybody came to our table. What happened at Labrie could not have happened any other way. You see, you don't need a big program. All you have to do is open your home and begin And there's no place in God's world where there are no people who will come and share a home as long as it is a real home. If you've been married for years and years and had a home or even a room and none of this has ever occurred, if you have been quiet, especially as our culture is crumbling around us, if this is so, do you really believe that people are going to hell? And if you really believe that, how can you stand and say, I've never paid the price to open my living space and do the things that I can do on my own level? I have a question about, in my mind about us as evangelicals. We fight the liberals when, when they say there's no hell, but do we really believe people are going to hell? So this call to love is a call 
to make disciples and fulfill the Great Commission. Week five, Jesus' power, which is right what we need next, right? We need some help because we're convicted and like, ah, help me. I don't know how to do this. And so thankfully, we don't have to do this on our own steam, in our own strength. The Lord gives us his spirit. So two verses here. Listen to Luke 24. It's before Jesus ascended. He said, Thus it is written that the, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Another form of the Great Commission, right? You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. If you're going to do this, if you're going to be witnesses and disciples taking this gospel to the ends of the earth, you're going to need power from on high. You're going to need clothed with power from on high, the promise of, this, of the Father, and that is the Spirit to enable us to make disciples. Or Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So again, the power is for more than mission, but it is certainly for the mission, Jesus' mission. Week six, Jesus' people. We are like a discipleship co-op. We are helping each other grow. So we looked that week at Ephesians 4. Look at it again there. Rather, speaking the truth in love to one another as the body, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The responsibility for us to grow up and mature rests on every shoulder. We all need to speak the truth in love so that we build each other up in love. This is a discipleship co-op. And where are we headed? We're headed towards Christ's likeness to being fully like our master, right? So Luke 6.40 says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. So all the discipleship investment that takes place within the family of God Working that kind of discipleship mentality into our DNA means that we are going to be faithful followers of Jesus in every nook and cranny of life, and certainly it's going to have an impact on how we make disciples of all the nations. That investment mentality, that loving relational dynamic is going to bless and benefit and build up the body of Christ, but it's also going to impact every relationship outside, right? Because we're going to look to invest the truth of the gospel in anybody that we meet, our neighbors. We're not going to just run and hide and put the garage door down. We're going to be pushed out to get to know and love and invest in the people around us or coworkers or extended family or whatever. So finally, praying for one in one. Okay, so ever since the annual meeting in October, we've been encouraging here and there that everybody be praying. Lord, use me to make one disciple this year. One in one. Okay? So 
Just think about it this way. When two people love one another and get married and that love wells up with longing to produce children, does anybody think that's weird to reproduce? No. And we know, and some of you very painfully firsthand, that there is an acute heartache when those two people are unable to reproduce. It is in the nature of living things to reproduce. God has made it so. Be fruitful and multiply. Or think about it this way. When a person's heart breaks with compassion and love over orphans who are in distress or women sold into slavery, does anybody think it's odd when that person works tirelessly to rescue those vulnerable people and transfer them to the safety of an adoptive home or a protective community? Oh, and we understand the acute heartache when those efforts are thwarted by governmental red tape or corruption or the threats of wicked men and women who hold sway over those women. So if we, if we are alive in Christ, should we not have a longing to reproduce? It's not some weird notch in, your, in the belt, but rather rescue from captivity. Like, there's so much hopelessness, so many people just running headlong to hell that don't even know it all around us. And we can have a part in an eternal impact in a person's life, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the, dark, to the kingdom of light, from condemnation and wrath to reconciliation and adoption. Don't you want to make disciples? Yes. So listen, there's this little book. Um, this was quoted in David Platt's book called Follow Me. It's called Born to Reproduce by Dawson Trotman. He's the guy that started The Navigators. And here's what he wrote. Every person who is born into God's family is to multiply. In every Christian audience, I'm sure there are men and women who have been Christians for 5, 10, or 20 years, but who do not know of one person who's living for Jesus Christ today because of them. Every one of God's children ought to be a reproducer. Where is the one whom you led to Christ and who is now going on with him? How many persons do you know by name today who were won to Christ by you and are now living for him? So if you have that desire, the point is not to, you know, like beat yourself up over failure in the past. The point is, do you have that desire? Well, are you going to take some intentional steps and start like praying like you've never prayed? Lord, use me. I want to see other people come to Christ, so use me. Help me see what it looks like to sow and cultivate relationships and, and be bold and like help me. So that's it. Let's go and tell making disciples in the footsteps of our Savior, in the power of His Spirit. Let's pray. We're going to sing a final song, and then we'll have a few minutes of community discussion. So if the musicians want to come on up. Oh, Lord, please, would you help us? Help us to become disciples who make disciples. Strengthen us, train us, encourage us, push us out of our comfort zone, equip us 
with everything good that we may do your will, working in us that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus for his glory and the good of so many others, we pray. Amen.